Hello, New Life Manitou. Hello, I'm Pastor Brett. I'm one of the pastors on staff with New Life at Large. And I, we're just going to jump in this morning. Have you ever been really disappointed by the ending of a movie? Yes, yes, I'm sure. Anyone want to shout out there the least favorite ending to a movie that you've heard? I, I'm just curious because I have mine, but no, nobody. Okay, well, that's, that's okay if nobody wants to share, but what is it? Sister? Sinister is, was a disappointing ending. Mine was a Million Dollar Baby. Have you guys seen Million Dollar Baby? I'm going to spoil it for you right now. I'm sorry. Or actually save it for you if you actually end up seeing it. Um, it, I'm sorry. I do forgive me if I'm spoiling a movie and you don't want me to. (laughs) Like it. It's a well over a two-hour movie. It, star, it centers on this, uh, this boxer named Maggie Fitzgerald is the main character of this movie. She's an underdog boxer who wants to win. Uh, you know, she's got dream for her dreams to come true. She wants to provide for her family. There's like a climb up the socioeconomic class ladder, all of that. And so she does what any of us would do if we wanted to become a world champion boxer. You hire Clint Eastwood as your trainer. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood's going to get you there. Um, but about two-thirds the way through the movie, Maggie has an accident. During one of her fights, she actually falls on a a stool and uh, breaks her neck. And the last 40 minutes of this movie, so it's the last third of this movie, is nothing like I expected at all. Uh, Maggie is uh, suddenly paralyzed uh, from, like, the neck down, and she's permanently on a ventilator. And the movie actually, it, it, like, it ends in a very, very dark way. Um, her trainer, Clint Eastwood, of course, um, helps her to end her own life. <laughs> and this isn't the story that I was expecting it to be at all. The, like, the whole film turns out to be like a dark meditation on, like, the human condition. Is <laughs> what the, the film, on, like, morality and class struggle and eventually euthanasia. And it, that's fine. Like, films can do and be whatever they want to be. But, like, the marketing department of whatever this, they, they created commercials and they created movie trailers. Go YouTube, YouTube them at some point because it's like infamous. They were presenting the movie like it's going to be Rocky. You know what I mean? Like everybody's radically disappointed in this movie because they were not prepared for the ending <laughs> like, like me. Um, in, in most movies, you get about two-thirds of the way through the movie and like the hero faces some kind of like devastatingly difficult obstacle. You know, that's like the climax of a movie. You know, are they going to prevail in about two-thirds of the way through? Uh, It builds the tension to that, but the hero eventually rises above it. The hero eventually prevails. The hero eventually wins. You know, every obstacle is overcome. Uh, I went in expecting that. (laughs) You know, yo, Adrian, I expected Rocky is what I expected, and my expectations were the problem. You know, I couldn't actually enjoy, if that's the word for it, <laughs> like a, a movie like this, a Greek tragedy in effect. I couldn't enjoy it because I was expecting Rocky. The ending of Million Dollar Baby is a train wreck, and that's the point. 
<laughs> That's the point of the movie. It's not the, it's not the kind of movie I was expecting. We're going to be finishing up Nehemiah today. If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is actually the second part of a longer work called Ezra. <laughs> it's, the, it's all of, we have a book called Ezra that they are actually one book. They're one literary work uh, together. But we've been walking through the second half of that, Nehemiah, over the last few weeks. And if you've been around the last couple of months as we've been doing this, we've been camping out in Nehemiah. And we've been, I'm afraid we might have gotten the wrong impression about what kind of movie this is. Um, if we imagine the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, and you should, as telling a big story, a grand story, we are actually near the end of not just Nehemiah, but of the Old Testament's story like as a whole. We, like, long ago, way back there is Abraham. Way back there is Moses. Way back there is even King David. They are long gone. In fact, Jerusalem is long gone. Jerusalem ha has been gone. Like, it's been, like, decimated, destroyed. The plot, if you'll remember, of Nehemiah actually circles around this about, like, trying to grapple with how do we rebuild Jerusalem? How do we make it habitable again? Um, because decades before, Jerusalem had been like utterly decimated. It had been like starved by siege and then systematically destroyed by fire. Like this wasn't an accident. The Babylonian army came in and just destroyed it. They don't want any more rebellions on the western coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Like get rid of it. And so all the survivors of war and disease and starvation, they were marched by Babylon's military back to Babylon and the surrounding areas, some 500 miles away as the crow flies. Um, but by the winding indirect way you had to get there on the roads, it actually is like almost double that in walking distance, like a thousand miles of walking back, walking to somewhere you've never gone to because your home has now been just utterly destroyed and most of the people that you love as well. The people have been in, this is called exile, if you didn't know. It's a big part of the biblical story. The people have been in exile now for like long enough for an entire generation of Jewish children to grow up and this is like normal for them. It's kind of like how the events of, you guys, have you guys recognized this, the events of 9-11 that a lot of us lived through, like, and were traumatic for us to live through. But, like, it's weird when you recognize that everyone in their early 20s has only ever experienced that as something, one more thing that happened back there. <laughs> you know, back there. I, I've seen footage. I've read about it. And I, I know about it, but it, it's just part of, part of the story of history at this point. Our passage today is uh, kind of lengthy. I'm actually not going to make you... We, normally, we stand for the reading of Scripture, but I'm not going to make you stand because I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage from Nehemiah chapter 10, and I think it's going to frame up the end of the book really nicely for us. Um, so just to remind us where we are before I read this passage, Nehemiah is a memoir. It is uh, written by a man named... Nehemiah. <laughs> yeah, it's the second half of this longer work that's uh, Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jewish-born secular leader 
who uh, arrives in a decimated Jerusalem to help rebuild it with a priest named Ezra, of course. Um, and it is a singular, singular literary work. Uh, Nehemiah famously arrives to help rebuild not just the, not the people's faith, but actually the, uh, the, the infrastructure, like the actual like physical stuff of the, of the city. And the last few chapters of the book, from chapter 8, 7 or 8, onward through chapter 13, which is the end, um, the wall has been built. Great, that's what we've been waiting on. The wall's been built, and this is where the book actually becomes Million Dollar Baby, in a, in a way. Ezra, the, the priest, he has taught the people what it means to be following the instruction of Moses in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, Nehemiah, he's the functional governor of the city. Um, he publicly confesses uh, the people's sin in a rather lengthy chapter in chapter 9. And then we arrive at, as chapter 10 begins. There's a bunch of names which make you just not want to read it at all, but it's so interesting. The Bible is so interesting. We arrive at the heart of chapter 10, um, verse 28 after a whole lot of names in chapter 10. And that's what we're, we're gonna pick it up. I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna try to read it in a way that can help you um, catch maybe the rhythm of, of scripture. Because a lot of times I'm afraid that we don't read scripture because we just don't quite know how, how to read it. So I'm gonna do my best to read it for you. Um, and it'll be up here on the screens if you don't have a Bible. Uh, so Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 28. The rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the servant, uh, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. So they're taking this very, very seriously, is the point there, that, that, that they were given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons that had gotten them in trouble a long time ago, intermarrying with other people, end up worshiping other gods, that sort of thing. We're not going to do that anymore. And verse 31, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, what will you do on the Sabbath? Well, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year, because that's, uh, of course, when you let the land rest. And, the, and we will forgive the extraction of every debt, that's every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. We will also take on ourselves. They're promising to do a lot of things, aren't they? <laughs> and we will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. This house, this temple you just built, we'll give to it. For the show, we're giving our money for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise, we will cast lots. They're going to roll dice, in essence. We're going to go by chance. We're all going to take turns casting lots for the wood offering, bringing, you know, firewood. Wood's expensive, and uh, 
now and then, um, to bring it to the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves, no joke, you guys are doing a lot. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground. So anything that grows out of the ground, the first bits of it go to the temple so that as a Thank you to God for growing stuff out of the ground. And the first fruits of all the fruit of every wood. It's the word tree, which is the same one as, as wood. It's um, Eretz. And so oh, I've just tr- modified it right here so that you catch the word play going on. Uh, they're gonna bring wood and the fruit of every wood year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every wood, the wine and the oil to our priests. We wanna take care of them because we know that's part of their stuff. So wine and oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, the, everywhere in the temple is going to be handled responsibly that, you know, this is sacred space and to bring to the Levites, the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor and the priest, the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes. So the the tenth of the tenths to the house of of our God, to the chambers of our storehouse. For, we're almost done. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers, and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord, and everybody said, (laughs) you think we're done, but we're actually not, because the scroll of of Ezra Nehemiah just keeps on going after this. In chapter 11, it mirrors actually those bunch of names right there. It's essentially like, um, these are real names of real people. It's in essence like a notarized signature of everybody who's like, yes, we'll do that. We are going to take this seriously. Um, And it's uh, what they've agreed to and where they're living in the land. And then in chapter 12, the penultimate chapter, the next to last, they have a parade, a worship parade is what they, they are through the rebuilt city is what we've got. Ezra, he's the the Bible nerd leader. Uh, He goes with half of the group in verses 31 through 37 of chapter 12. And then Nehemiah, he's the functional governor. He goes through with the other half of the group through the city in verses 38 through 43 of chapter 12. It's like a, a ribbon cutting ceremony meets like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade or something, meets like a worship service, you know? It's, it's almost like the Christmas Eve uh, going through, like when we go through the parade in Manitou Springs and we sing in the streets, it's kind of like that except bigger and maybe a Charlie Brown, Brown float, you know what I mean? It's like, it, this is a really big deal. And this leads us, this leads us to uh, near the end of chapter 12, Chapter 12, verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day, the day of the parade, the day of celebration. Yes, we finally got Jerusalem back. 
They made great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Isn't that a beautiful way for Ezra and Nehemiah to end? It's like this awesome worship service and a brand new city. And if we will just commit ourselves to the right way and seriously like rededicate our lives to God and lose ourselves in the worship experience, then if we will just do that, then joy will echo through our hearts and through the land. We could say it this way on a slide. If we will just try harder, we'll finally get it. Oh, shoot. You, you got that, Ken? Oh, it's not. Oh, shoot. If we'll just try harder, then everything will work out. Wait. Wait, there's another chapter to Nehemiah. The problem is that's not the way that Nehemiah ends. Nehemiah doesn't end with chapter 12. It ends with chapter 13. And we're not quite sure what to make of chapter 13. I'm not going to read much of it. I've actually set up chapter 13 by reading to you chapter 10 is what, we, is what I've done. Because uh, we could say it this way. Nehemiah ends his memoir with a bullet list of bummers. Bummer, dude. Like, we've been expecting Rocky this whole time. But the final chapter of Nehemiah is very, very clever. What it's doing, chapter 13, the last chapter has 31 verses, and they essentially disassemble every bit of hope that came before it, everything that had been promised. We will do that! Chapter 13 is just systematically disassembling and showing, nope. It's like we spent 12 chapters planning to build a ship. It's like, we're, like we've been defending the docks so that the ship can get built. We've been coordinating who's going to do what role on the ship. Okay, you'll do that, and you'll do that. And, you'll, and then we've, we've been like smashing a champagne bottle on the side of the ship to celebrate. Yes, we finally built the ship. And then chapter 13 comes along and pulls the rug out from under us because we've managed to build Titanic. It, it, it is essentially what's happened here. Essentially, chapter 13 dismantles everything that we've read so far. Instead um, of the prime real estate of the temple space being taken very, very seriously, and we're going to make sure that everything, the chambers are all right, we find out that uh, Nehemiah actually discovers that a creep named Tobiah, he's the same Tobiah that we've heard about after week after week, that guy somehow makes his way into the prime real estate of a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and turns it into a luxury penthouse and a storefront for selling stuff. That's verse 8 of chapter 13. When Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he has like has to evict him, has to throw all his stuff out. Bummer, dude. <laughs> like That was something everyone promised they were going to do. hate that that happened. It's an, it wasn't supposed to turn out that way. And then, like... And that means that we really never even got started if we're not taking the temple's grounds seriously. Like the priests and the Levites and the singers like that are supposed to be managing this temple 
everyone's supposed to be here and contributing. And they never actually even got leadership of what they were supposed to be doing or support. Nobody brought them compensation, like first fruits or oil or wine or anything. They've, uh, verse 10 of chapter 13, they've all wandered back to their fields because that's where we're going to be able to eat. Bummer. (laughs) Bummer. Basic acts of devotion to Yahweh. Basic things like keeping the Sabbath. (laughs) This is is what we do as a people. They turn out to be too difficult for people to do. Can't even... Can't even do that. Nehemiah finds himself actually locking merchants out of the city so that they won't sell anything on the Sabbath. This is verse 19 of chapter 13. (laughs) So let me get this straight. The whole project started with rebuilding a city and walls so that people could be safe. And now you're sending people outside the walls at night What is going on? He's locking people out of the walls that he helped rebuild. He actually threatens in verse 21, he threatens to assault them, is what Nehemiah does. What happened to the worship parade? (laughs) Like, bummer, this is not great. Instead of being able to easily separate like foreigners from more pure-blooded Israelites, which is what everyone was like hoping we could be, Nehemiah discovers that like half of the kids, there's so many people that have intermarried that half of the kids don't even speak Hebrew. Let's go, how are they even going to learn what it means to be God's people? Bummer. This is so frustrating. In fact, it's so frustrating to Nehemiah that he, he loses his temper at the end of the book and he eventually makes good on his threat and he um, curses, verse 25 of chapter 13, he curses and assaults these families. It says that he uh, like pulls their hair is (laughs) one of the things that it says. Uh, Like, and that is something you would remember, you know, like a car accident, you can still feel it in your body, like pulling someone's hair. It feels like something you would... You'd still remember your body would. It's a confusing way to end a book, isn't it? It's, but, all, but also, isn't this way more interesting than a happy ending? <laughs> like, let's get real here. This is what I want us to recognize today. The Bible is a sophisticated literary showcase of human futility and failure, if you didn't know. That's what the Bible is. Nobody in the grand story, what we call the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, nobody gets it right, ever. Abraham and Sarah, way back here, they sexually abuse a slave to try to fulfill God's promise. Moses has a rebellious heart and dies outside the land. David rapes a woman and kills her husband. Solomon is the smartest fool you'll ever meet because he ends up sowing the seeds of his nation's collapse. Isaiah looks delusional. Jeremiah looks suicidal. Ezekiel looks schizophrenic. And the nation, like, and I'm being for real about all of those guys, and the nation as a whole, like throughout the centuries of the story, is greedy and rebellious foolish. And this book, Nehemiah, here at the very end, is no different. 
The walls that Nehemiah built aren't enough. The, the teaching of Ezra, the Bible nerd, isn't enough. The recommitment of our hearts to God in this worship parade it isn't enough. The worship parade isn't enough. The, the great reform and rebuilding of Ezra, Nehemiah, is a titanic failure. That's the way Nehemiah actually ends. This is the, the final verse of the book is, uh, thus, he did his best. I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties as best I could of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And who provided for the wood offering? I did. I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, for good. What a strange note. Wait a a weird way to end a memoir, right? Nehemiah's like, I know we, like, the, the temple needs a fire, and I know we, we rolled dice, and we said we were all going to do it, but, like, I had to do it. I'm the only one who is bringing this. He's, he's doing it alone. <laughs> Man, the Bible's so brilliant, so awesome. Like, it, it, the Bible is not an easy read, I'll tell you that. If you're looking for an easy read, you will not find it in the Bible. But if you're looking for a lifetime of rewarding reading and rereading, the Bible is an unsurpassed masterpiece. It's what it is. It's demanding and it's amazing. Verse 34 of chapter 10 had said they're all going to be casting lots, bringing it together. And here we find obviously imperfect Nehemiah. I mean, he's assaulted some people at this point. He's fresh from beating his own people with his own fists. Nehemiah has recommitted himself to faithfulness and he alone is going to be doing it. By the end of the book of Nehemiah, you've got the bleeding fists of Nehemiah utterly alone in carrying the wood. That's what he's doing. Nothing has worked. Nothing has come together as he thought it would. No one else can even be bothered to carry the wood to the altar. We experience this all the time. We should say that this way. Humans chronically and compulsively fail. If you didn't know. <laughs> like if you haven't experienced this, you're at least frustrated with those around you who are experiencing this. We don't get it right. Like much. Ever. We, we work hard for years, and then we realize, oh, crap, I've been working in the wrong direction for years. We realize that hard work for years, years of hard work can fall apart in a handful of days. Or we work really hard and we actually do succeed. And then we realize that all of our good motives and all of our great success has actually succeeded in corrupting us in some sort of way. That like we find ourselves like getting hardened with pride or hardened with our success. I think this is why Nehemiah actually uh, turns this awkward phrase at the very end of the book. He says, he, imagine finding in someone's journal 
if you're reading, you're the kind of person who would read someone's journal. And <laughs> not really, but maybe you are. Um, we all fail. Um, <laughs> that was funny. Um, imagine finding that at the end of someone's journal. Remember me for good. Like, not for my good. Not for the good that I have done. That actually is something Nehemiah prays in the book. In chapter 5, verse 19, he says, he prayed to God, God, remember me for all the good I'm accomplishing here, rebuilding. But now, (laughs) after chapter 13, it seems like um, all of our good may have a profoundly short shelf life. Like, our good seems to spoil rather quickly. Even our best motives, our purest intentions, they have a way of like unraveling and falling apart. Nehemiah prays here at the end. He doesn't pray, remember me for the good I've done. Remember me for my good. Nehemiah instead says, remember me for good. The last moment of this book last moment of this memoir forces us to recognize that our only hope is that someone else saves us. Because we're a mess. God, please rescue me. Remember me for good. God will succeed in bringing ultimate and forever good to our lives and to the world. That is what Nehemiah is hoping here at the end. We should say it this way. Humans chronically and compulsively fail and God won't leave. And God won't leave. He won't stop loving us. That's like all the good news. The good news is not that if you work hard enough or that you dedicate yourself to God long enough, or you succeed in having more good days than bad days, or you can change the world if you just work hard enough. That is not the good news. There's a reason why the cross and the resurrection are at the center of the Christian imagination. The bleeding frame of Jesus is utterly alone in carrying the wood. And that's not an accident. There's only one person, this this one human being who is faithful. He's the only person who has really, truly pure intentions, who has truly good motives. He's the only person who happens to be God-made human. And even this person fails. That's what the cross is, (laughs) (laughs) on some level. Like crucifixion is not something you'd put on your resume. It's not something that like, well, I was tortured and executed. It doesn't seem to exactly scream success, does it? Nobody walks by a cross by that bleeding body, that suffocating shell of a human being and thinks, what a winner. They're doing it. When God becomes a human being, even God fails. Like with us. Why, why would God do that? And the answer is to be with us. <laughs> like you're failing, so will I. You're struggling, so will I. You're dying. You have a ticket on the Titanic. You're destined for death. Well, you know what? I've 
I got a ticket too. I got a ticket too. You're not gonna be rid of me. Guess what? I'll go anywhere with you. I will go everywhere with you. I will fail with you. I will sink to the bottom of the abyss. I'll descend into hell if I have to. And please hear this. I remember you for good. That's something, that's something, it's the only thing I want you to hear this morning. I think some of us need to hear that in the room. God remembers you for good. God says, I am working for your good, not because of anything you have managed to achieve, not because of your track record of good days, but simply because I love you. That's the gospel, by the way. God fails with us in our humanity so we won't be alone. And then God succeeds at resurrection so we won't stay dead. <laughs> it's, it's really good news. I, I know this isn't a clever life hack. I know it's not like, doesn't have easy, like immediate application, but it's our only hope. It's quite frankly, like Nehemiah is a failure. Ezra is a failure. I'm a failure. You're a failure. Everyone's a failure. And we're all in really good company because God is with us. I am loved, and you are loved. The scriptures themselves are woven together from the lives of failures. Failure isn't where we risk losing God. Failure is actually where we most meet God. Failure is the places where our defenses sometimes actually come down for a second, and we're ready to be malleable and changed for a second. Like it, failure is the place where our pride withers, maybe for just a second, where we understand that absolutely everything depends on another who's going to save me. So what I want to tell you today is that you don't need to hide your failure. You don't need to hide your failure. <laughs> Nehemiah actually wrote a memoir about this. Like he embrace he he tells his failure at the end and makes you like it's a twist ending that you have to reread his entire narrative because he recognizes everything I did didn't work. And maybe his confession of failure is his greatest act of worship. Maybe, just maybe. Nehemiah is like that tax collector in Jesus' parable. He's just like at the end, he's just beating his chest far away from God and saying, I've failed, have mercy, help. And that one went home righteous. That one went home justified. You don't have to hide your failure. You're invited to trust that God is meeting you in it. God's meeting you in it. And you're invited to remember that God is remembering you for good. And so Jesus, we... We do. We say this is our only hope. This is the only thing we have. We don't need um, better tactics for our lives. We need to trust you. We need clear vision of you. And so we ask that you would um, help us to see you afresh in this, in coming to the table. Help us to recognize that you are joining us even in death, 
even death on a cross. And you are getting your indestructible life into us. We ask for faith to believe this today. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and stand. The band, you guys can come on up. And uh, Pastor Joe is going to lead us to the table. Yeah, let's stand. There's in your baskets near your chairs, there's these little communion uh, with a cup and a bread. And we invite everyone in here. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord, you're invited to receive with us and to respond from this message about our own failures, but about how Christ has saved us. You're invited to receive. So if you would, would you get these cups? Would you stand with me? At the top is a piece of bread, and Jesus, he said during his earthly ministry that he's the bread of life. And on the last night with his friends, his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And if you want, you could take the bread and break it in your fingers as a reminder that Christ's body was broken for you, that he took your failures and his body was broken so that you could be restored, so that you could be set free, so that you could be filled with his grace. So Jesus, we take you, the bread of life, and we receive you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. On the same night, Jesus took a cup. and He said, this is a cup of my blood, a cup of a new covenant shed for many. And we, when we receive this cup, we we thank the Lord for the mystery of his life's blood being poured out for us. We think of the cross that's at the center of this room. We think of Jesus dying for us. And so it's with that that we receive in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we, we come before you in worship. Lord, we give our lives to you. We admit that we have failed, but Lord, that we thank you that you have covered us, washed over us. You've given us new life. So, Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We sing this one last song with you in our hearts as we worship. Jesus Christ. 
your living hope. Would you thank him right now with a round of praise, thanks. He is so good and holy. He is awesome. Lord, we say to you now, you are our living hope. And Lord, we can leave here knowing that you will fill us, Lord, with your grace and mercy. Lord, we praise your holy name. Amen. Well, as you leave today, there's going to be a prayer team, myself included, up here. Come forward. We would love to pray for you or with you. If you're new or new-ish, or if, you, if you're not on the email list, some people are like, I never get your emails. Would you fill out a visitor card? They're in the little baskets there with just as much uh, or as little information as you want to give us. Give it to the wonderful people out there. I see the Scudlarks out there. They're a friendly uh, couple. Just give them those papers as you leave today. A couple more. More announcements. Our women's ministry happens on the first and third of every uh, first and third Thursday of every month. And this Thursday, instead of being here, you're going to be at uh, our house. My wife Erica and and my myself. The women will be there. So that's six thirty on Thursday. More information uh, back at the table, or come talk to my wife Erica, who's going to be overseeing uh, that Thursday. And then a really big announcement is that this coming Sunday, a week from today, is going to be our baptism service. We have three people already signed up to get baptized. Praise the Lord. If you've never been baptized, Jesus Jesus says to do it. It's a part of discipleship. It says, make disciples and baptize them. So if you want to get 
baptized, come talk to me. There's a, a, a quick thing to fill out. We'll have a conversation. Um, and Or if you're someone who has got baptized, but you're just at a different place in your life. We, we don't believe you have to get baptized to be saved. What we believe is that it's a mystery of God's sanctifying work in us. And we publicly declare that we are a part of him and his community. So if you want to get baptized, come talk to me or the people in the back. I think that's all the announcements. So may I pray a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you all this week, Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray that we have cups and you will come in and you will fill them to overflowing this week and that we can leave reminding ourselves that you, Lord, are our living hope. Lord, we pray this and receive it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>